The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, dress listeners, I think to say that April and I are excited to bring you our interview with today's guest is a bit of a understatement. I mean, it's actually a huge understatement. I think we're both elated that Hamish Bowles agreed to be our guest today on the show. Yes, and this is kind of, in a weird way, part two of our earlier interview with Hamish. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Because some of our listeners will remember that we actually spoke to Hamish, um, and that episode aired in September when he joined us to discuss Vogue's newly launched podcast, In Vogue, the 1990s. And he is the host, of course, of this limited-run series that celebrates this electrifying decade in fashion history. It also just happens that this is also the same decade when Hamish began his career in American Vogue, where he remains to this day as an international editor at large. But there is so much more to Hamish's story, especially because he's an incredibly accomplished fashion historian and haute couture collector. And he joins us today to share the childhood origins of his passion for fashion history and the building blocks of his extraordinary life and career. Hamish, welcome back to Dressed. Hamish, this is really truly a very special experience uh, to have you on the show today because you have been on our dream list of guests since the very beginning of the show, which is now like almost three years. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm thrilled to be in your pantheon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Right at the top. We would love to hear more about how you came to fashion and fashion history. For instance, do you have an earliest memory of fashion or a moment or event that first introduced you to the power of the dressed body? Funnily enough, I do, although it's almost my mother's memory. She told me about this moment, and I recalled it very, very vividly. I think I was about three or four, perhaps. We lived in North London, and we were walking down the the sort of leafy kind of Hampstead street, and this woman was walking towards us in a sari, an Indian woman, and I was completely 
and literally bedazzled because it seemed as though what she was wearing was fashioned from gold. It was like a sort of Cinderella dress that was kind of spun from sunbeams or something. <laughs> and um, I sort of <laughs> I sort of rushed up to her and asked her about it and was kind of <laughs> tugging at the sari because I just thought it was this sort of magical, bewitching thing. So there's that memory. I certainly have memories of rooting around in the back of my mother's closet where she kept her clothes from her 1950s youth. She was a very sort of free-spirited, hippie kind of woman and dresser. And I very clearly remember a great many of her clothes. She had a little kind of Courage-inspired dress in a very stiff grass green ribbed cotton with a giant zipper down the front with a sort of um, hoop at the end. I remember that. And then I remember a lot of kind of crushed velvets that smelled of patchouli and so on. <laughs> but in the in the back of her closet, she had this extraordinary dress, which was a poppy red paper taffeta that was lined in a in something that resembled the kind of fleece that you <laughs> that you put in attics to seal the heat in to give it its skirts and volume. And it had two, I remember it was off the shoulder and it had two little bows. Um, and it was by a British brand called Polly Peck, who did sort of line for line Paris copies. And I remember, uh, now I know that it was a Dior copy, but I was absolutely mesmerized by this dress and the fact that it just seemed to conjure up a woman so different from the mother that I knew as a little boy. Um, I think all these things turned me on to the idea of the stories that clothes can tell and how potent they can be. I mean, that red taffeta dress literally smelled of Madame Rochas, I think. But, you know, my mum's clothes just smelled of patchouli and <laughs> all kinds of illicit substances. So, you know, it was like this other this other chapter in her life that I didn't really know anything about, but found so interesting and intriguing. Um, I used to, as a, as a very little boy, I used to go to the costume court at the Victorian Albert Museum. And I was so excited by this idea, as I've said, of of the stories that clothes can tell you and looking at, you know, a kind of 1750s court dress with a nine-foot span of skirt and thinking... I mean, how could you get up a staircase? How could you get through a door? I mean, <laughs> what's the woman wearing this doing? I mean, what kind of life is she leading? And then, you know, looking at Indian muslin dresses from the beginning of the 19th century and thinking, you know, how could you survive in an English climate wearing a dress <laughs> like that, you know? So I was, I was kind of bewitched by the history of clothing and costume and we were very lucky because in my childhood, our next door neighbour was a woman called Dr. Anne Saunders, who was the secretary of the Costume Society of Great Britain. And she could see my nascent interest in clothing and she, in costume history, and she would give me these little kind of um, paper doll colouring books that from the Victorian Albert Museum, which had costumes from um, every five years through the 19th century, for instance. So I Really, at a very, very young age, I had a sense of the evolving silhouette of fashion and costume. And I would buy, Windsor and Newton used to do colouring books that had fashion in the time of, well, it would have been called costume then, costume in the time of 
Queen Anne or William and Mary or George I. And so I bought all those and coloured them in very inappropriately in kind of strident 60s felt tip pen colours. But they, they kind of look great now. They look very <laughs> Alessandro Michele, very sort of uh, very Gucci de nos jours. And Dr. Saunders has a very vivid memory of me aged five rushing into her kitchen. <laughs> she was trying to bake a sponge cake or something. And I had a, a dish towel wrapped around my head and knotted into a kind of elaborate bow in the front. And I said to her, <laughs> is, this, is this the correct way to wear a fontange? <laughs> um, I'm not sure that at five I knew how to pronounce it, but um, I'd certainly read it. And I knew that, you know, Mademoiselle Fontange had been mistress of um, Louis XIV. I'm sure I wouldn't have known what a mistress was. A friend of Louis XIV, and they'd been out riding together, and she'd taken a tumble and undone her very elaborate hairstyle. And so she'd sort of used her lace lappets and kind of tied it up. And the resulting improvised hairstyle became known as, you know, coiffure à la Fontange. And I was just very keen to know exactly what the effect was. So I, th I think um, I think the die was set very, very early on, to say the least. And I was extremely lucky because I had very indulgent parents. I think they were just so bemused that this child had got, you know, developed this interest out of really out of all these sort of abstract things that had kind of come together in my mind and so they both gave me kind of costume history books and when I was very young. So that that's sort of how my interest in costume began. And then as I kind of turned into my tweens, I would say I was probably 10 or 11, I got electrified by the vision of a British Vogue cover that showed that I saw, you know, the, the local corner shop, shop where I'd probably gone to get lemon sherbets and some licorice or something. And there was a copy of Vogue and it had this unbelievably glamorous couple on the cover and um, Vogue was spelled out in different colours. And, you know, I later realised that they were, well, in fact, <laughs> pretty soon after I determined that they were, the couple were Angelica Houston and Manolo Blahnik. Um, I think it was the first time they'd had a, a man on the cover of British Vogue. And they were caught in the south of France in this sort of narrative that I was subsequently to discover had been conceived and dressed and staged by Grace Coddington, a uh, great British Vogue, legendary British Vogue fashion editor and, and subsequently, of course, American Vogue creative director and photographed by David Bailey. And I just thought you know, at that point, we'd left London and we were living in on a farm in the Kentish countryside in Britain and having this very kind of rustic rural life. I was just going to the village school. And this issue of Vogue and the whole idea of Vogue made me realise that there was another world out there, a sort of parallel universe of unbelievably glamorous women, you know, who weren't digging vegetable patches in holy jeans and Mongolian lamb coats when the weather got cold, 
patched up with sort of butterflies and things, but they were there wearing these amazing 1930s and 20s dresses from a place called Antiquarius in London and wonderful clothes by designers like Bill Gibb, who rapidly became my guru of fashion, and Zandra Rhodes, John Bates, uh, Jean Muir, Pablo and Delia, Thea Porter. All these people became these kind of magical names in my fantasy parallel life. Um, my father at this point was living in London, and so every other weekend I would go up and spend time with him. And I, <laughs> um, he remembers that I would sort of give him a, I would send him a little postcard or a letter saying, this coming weekend, I want to go to Bieber. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Portobello Road. Um, I want to see a little night music at the theatre. And, <laughs> you know, and he would sort of indulge me. So I just had these my sister was going every other weekend and she wanted to go to football matches and um, <laughs> do all these kind of very hearty things. So so all the, all the things that my father really loved, he could do with her, <laughs> although he did love the theatre. And he very gamely, absolutely, you know, took me to Bieber and took me to the Portobello Road. And at a certain point, I found this great compendium, which was something like a sort of where to find it encyclopedic fashion book about London. And I sort of systematically went through it from A to Z. And I just went to all these stores. We were very lucky because in Hampstead, there was a, a wonderful fashion boutique called Chic, Chic of Hampstead. And they stopped all the designers I loved. So, you know, Bill Gibb and Sandra Rhodes and Jean Muir and some of the new uh, European names like uh, Missoni and Walter Albini and so on. And they had these unbelievably nice sales ladies who <laughs> must have been a little bit astounded that a sort of eight-year-old boy was walking in and asking about Sandra Rhodes dresses and things. But they were so, they couldn't have been nicer. And they sort of would bring things out and they would explain to me about Jean Muir's use of Jersey and they'd bring out, you know, fantasy Zandra Rhodes or something. It was really wonderful. So that was also a little education. And then, you know, a few years later, when I've got this book, I'm literally, you know, taking the bus from my dad's apartment and going into central London and discovering Browns, which was, of course, the sort of Nuflu's ultra fashion store in London at the time who kind of bought every ahead of the curve designer that you could think of around the world. And, you know, they were the first store to stock Giorgio Armani in Britain and uh, and Calvin Klein subsequently and Sonia Riquel. And so that was just going in there was a fashion education. And I would go to the Saint Laurent Rive Gauche store and the Chloe store run by absolutely both of them owned and managed by a terrifying woman called Lady Claire Rendlesham, who had been a Vogue fashion editor and was really a kind of caricature of a fabulous Cruella de Vil fashion type, you know. So that was sort of my, I was just sort of autodidact, really. I mean, my mum my had a, a great deal of style, but wasn't really, you know, didn't have the money to buy fashion clothes. And so I was just getting my information where I could, which would be 
the Sunday colour supplements of the newspapers. There would always be a fashion thing. And and it was a, a great time for escapist romantic movies as well. So I was, you know, going to things like The Great Gatsby and Murder on the Orange Express and then discovering Visconti's historicist movies. And so that was another education in in costume and fashion history seen through the eyes of the really great costume designers like Theodora Van Runkel or um, Piero Tozzi. But, you know, it was all, this was all parallel to my kind of ordinary schoolboy life when I was, you know, playing football and rugby and doing cross-country running and collecting tropical fish and, you know, <laughs> making airfix models of the Cutty Sark or whatever it was. So, <laughs> but I just had this, this separate world that I didn't really share with my school friends. I shared it with my girlfriends, but I was not not the boys at school. And yes, it just went on like that. Of course, now, like all of that, all of that immersion in your personal passion at that time has led to the fact that you are now the international editor at large for Vogue. And of course, recognized as and respected as one of the world's leading authorities on fashion and fashion history. So, so much of your education was self-directed at that time, but you also did attend Central St. Martin's, if I am correct. Yes. And then that led you to, you know, working at Vogue, which was an inspiration to you at So Young. Would you tell us a little bit about um, your time at Central St. Martin's and also your early career? Uh, absolutely. Well, what the first really amazing thing that happened in in my fashion life is that British Vogue used to do an annual talent competition to find, you know, potential new editors and so on. And I, uh, as I was then at, at the age of 14, I was a voracious British Vogue reader. I kind of applied. I mean, I, I remember you had to write a, a sort of 400 word autobiography. And you had to write about the person, living or dead, who had influenced you most. I wrote about Cecil Beaton. And I think I might have done some fashion drawings. Um, anyway, to my unmitigated glee, I, I got a sort of letter that sort of came thudding through the letterbox saying, um, you have been chosen as one of the finalists. And would you come up to London for lunch at Vogue House? And so... You know, I did that, and that was my first real, the first really glamorous, grown-up fashion world thing that I'd done at 14. And I I met Beatrix Miller, who was the formidable editor-in-chief, and I met um, Elizabeth Tilberis, who was a great fashion editor. And I could see Grace Coddington in the distance, sort of probably <laughs> shout, shouting at an assistant, I think. And B. Miller very sweetly said, you know, we were talking about fashion designers and everything. And she said, um, would you like to see a fashion show? And if you did, is the one you'd like to see? And I said, yes, I would more than life itself. I'd like to go to the Bill Gibbs show. And sure enough, she got me tickets to see the Bill Gibbs show. And that was a sort of transporting thing. And so I think that kind of showed me that maybe there could be a career in fashion, you know, as well as it being this abstract dream, aspirational thing. It could be a concrete, real thing. And from high school, I was supposed to go and read English at university. Um, but I was reading all about 
the new romantics and that sounded so exciting and the I, I was too kind of shy and introverted, if you can believe it at that point, to express myself in that way. But I was very excited and I could see that a lot of them were going to St. Martin's and I was interested in a career in fashion and also at that point interested in a career in costume design. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to put together a portfolio and I'm just going to apply to do foundation course at St. Martin's and decide, you know, if I want to do one of them and I'll just see if I get in, you know. Anyway, I went to see them and I'd done a portfolio and they basically offered me a course directly on the fashion degree course, but I thought it would be more sensible to do a a foundation course, which was then, you know, the, 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 a, a year-long course that uh, in which you experimented with lots of different kind of art disciplines. And about a week into that, so I did that at St. Martin's, and a week into that, I could just see how thrilling the fashion department was at St. Martin's. And so my mind was kind of made up. And, you know, a year later, I, I applied and I, I got into the fashion course there. And it was I, I just remember the first day of the foundation course, We have, they called it an induction day, you know, and you're meeting your fellow students. And it was just so sort of astounding to me because there were suddenly there were all these people who understood all my references. And I thought that I'd been operating in this crazy bubble, you know. And so that was incredibly empowering and thrilling. And my whole... St. Martin's experience was wonderful in that way. What then happened was that um, destiny shone a light because um, a magazine called Harper's and Queen, which was a kind of a marriage of uh, Harper's Bazaar and a rather innovative 1960s magazine called Queen, which was a little bit kind of irreverent, sort of what we would think of as I mean, the formula that then Tina Brown adopted it um, when she took over Tatler magazine and subsequently Vanity Fair, of course. That kind of, you know, the magazine that bites the hand that that reads it, as, <laughs> as uh, her Tatler declared on the spine. They used to do a teenage issue every few years. And I was still a teenager. I was 19. I was clinging on for dear life to my teens. And I applied and they made me the men's fashion editor. And I worked with a, a young photographer who'd recently come to London from Peru called Mario Testino. And we worked on a menswear shoot together. And the, the fashion editors, uh, Vanessa Delisle and Elizabeth Walker, kind of loved what I'd done for the menswear. And they then asked me to do a women's wear story for the magazine. So I was already a published stylist. Uh, and I, I even had a cover line, Hamish Bowles shortens the trouser. <laughs> <laughs> Very Tom Brown, you know, uh, 1982. And so that established a relationship with Harper's and they asked me back to do freelance projects whilst I was still at St. Martin's. And you know what? What happened was that there was, in my first design lesson on the fashion course at St. Martin's, our lecturer set us the assignment and she said, I want to show you a portfolio of a student's work that will show you, illustrate to you the kind of standard that I expect when you hand in your project in three days time. And 
she brought out this portfolio and she had a sort of room of about 20 students or however, however many we were. With You could hear the collective thud of jaws on the floor as she turned the pages of this portfolio. And it was just one page after another it was just absolutely incredible. I mean, they were exquisite illustrations and the designs were so imaginative. I mean, it was beautifully presented. I was like, oh my God. Um, and that was um, John Galliano's portfolio, which was really wicked of her because he was the absolute star student. And he was um, he was a couple of years ahead of me. And he began dating my, my best friend in my year. So we spent a lot of time together. And, you know, I was sort of in awe of his talent. And then when he produced his degree collection, I kind of, you know, helped sew on buttons. He did a collection inspired, as, I'm, as you know, by the Incroyable, these incredible, defiant, iconoclastic dandies who emerged in the wake of the French Revolution. And, you know, he was obsessed. He, his research was extraordinary. And he discovered that they wore, you know, narrow little red ribbons around their necks to look as though they had their heads severed by a guillotine. And, and he did this just you know, astounding fashion, you know, st to this day it remains, his degree collection remains one of the most electrifying fashion show experiences I've ever had in a very long career of electrifying fashion shows. And then my friend John Flett was also absolutely brilliant and one of those people like McQueen who could sort of take his scissors to a piece of fabric and just create a kind of bias cut dress with no <laughs> pattern that looked miraculous when he sort of pinned it on a mannequin and then sewn it into a dress for a, a, one of the debutantes on our course or something. So, you know, I was surrounded by brilliance and very excited by the world of magazines. And I sort of thought, I think at a certain point, I thought, I think I could probably be a very good fashion designer, <laughs> but I wonder if I could be a brilliant one. And so I sort of thought, um, I, I, I was really enjoying magazines and I was freelancing for The Face and for some of the titles that Franco Sozzani was responsible for under the, the um, Italian Vogue umbrella. So, you know, Vogue Bambini and all the kind of subsidiary titles that she was then responsible for be before she became editor-in-chief of Italian Vogue. And I was having a lot of fun. And in my work experience year, I went to work for Harper's and Amanda Grieve, as she then was, later Amanda Harlick, was the junior fashion editor. And she was obsessed with John Galliano. She spent all her time at his studio. And then she started collaborating on his first post-St. Martin's collection. And eventually she found a place as his kind of in-house muse stylist sounding board inspiration person. And I was offered her job at the magazine. So I left St. Martin's before I completed my degree because all, all my journalism tutors said, you know, we don't have anything more to teach you. We've, we've, tried, to, we've tried to get you to do down market stories and to go mass market and to... And, you know, you, you're only ever going to work for Harper's and Vogue, let's face it. And if... <laughs> If if one of them is offering you a job, you should just go for it, you know, with our blessing. So that's really what happened. And I, you know, then I found myself in the world of uh, of magazines and I didn't, you know, 
suddenly having legitimate invites to fashion shows and not having to kind of blag my way in pretending I was the model's agent or assistant or a, a, a makeup artist or whatever it was. And that kind of went from strength to strength. And ultimately, um, at the age of 22, I became the fashion director of Harpers and Queen. And so I was really directing the fashion content for the magazine. I was working with incredible people like Robert Mapplethorpe and the marvellous octogenarian surrealist photographer Angus McBain, David Seidner, who was just such an extraordinary talent, and doing a lot with Mario Testino. Our relationship sort of continued and we really travelled the world together doing these kind of epic narrative fashion shoots that kind of, I would say, melded my interest in costume design. <laughs> you know, I sort of felt I was a costume designer monkey, so I would, we would really do stories that were based on, that really had a narrative arc and that were based on a, a you know, an imagined Hitchcock-style story or an Agatha Christie 1930s whodunit, and I would kind of dress all the characters in this way. And so I had I had a great deal of fun doing that. And then after about six or seven years, I think I was editor-in-chiefs had changed and I that relationship became a little more complicated. And out of the blue, re- literally, I got a call, uh, a telephone call, and a voice at the other end of the line saying, hi, this is Anna Winter. I have a job for you at American Vogue. Uh, a style editor has just left and I, I'd like you to come and replace her. And you know, you'd be writing about interiors for the magazine. I Something rather ast- astounding had happened, which is that <laughs> American Vogue had just photographed my London apartment, which was not much bigger than my current office at the magazine, but it was, you know, filled with incident. And <laughs> they'd, done, they'd done a story on it. And Anna said, you know, I've seen the pictures of your London flat and I can see that you're interested in decorating and why don't you come and write about it for Vogue? And, you know, I was obviously fascinated by her legend. You know, she had she had been at British Vogue uh, for a year or so, <laughs> terrorising everyone there and refashioning the magazine in a, in a kind of very different way. And I'd actually, you know, I'd met her during that period, so she sort of knew who I was, I suppose. And I had, a, at that point, I was spending a lot of time in New York. A lot of my photographers were based there. Um, I loved the experience of going to the New York shows. I loved the idea of all these American social women, the kind of Nouvelle Society, as Women's Wear Daily called them, who were just so groomed and immaculate and pluperfect. And, you know, I mean, they looked sort of, I mean, they were so pristine, the way they presented themselves. It was so unlike even the you know the, the the style leaders of Britain, who all had the air that you know they kind of <laughs> there might be a little bit of mud from the country on those Manolos, um, and so I was kind of fascinated by that world. I was very excited by downtown New York and the art and nightclub scene, which I had certainly been deep dived into for for several years at that point, and I had lots of friends in New York, and so. It was kind of a no-brainer, really. I was sort of ready for a move. And I thought, oh, well, let me give this a whirl for a couple of years and just see, at least it's going to be an experience. And that was, you know, 1992. How time flies. (laughs) Almost 20 years. 
It's and I mean, almost it's almost thirty years. Oh, almost thirty. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No concept <laughs> of time has ceased to exist currently. <laughs> I know. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Now, three decades of contributions to Vogue are made all the more potent by your incredible knowledge of fashion, but also the history of fashion, as we discussed earlier. And you've kind of gone into one of my questions, which was what initially sparked that interest. But you have this extraordinary couture collection. And I read that you started collecting it in 1962, and I think you were 10 years old, and it started with a Balenciaga coat that you found in a thrift store. I mean, <laughs> I, your collection is incredible. It's it's hard to like bring into words. You have Lanvin, Balenciaga, Dior, the list goes on. Can you tell us a little bit more about this incredible collection and how you went about creating it and how you curate it to this day? Yes. Well, I'll tell you what happened. I mean, I was... Um, 
Yes, it was, it was going, it would have been would have been about 1970. So I was going to the Victoria and Albert Museum. I was reading costume books. I was kind of fascinated by the idea of of clothing, as I've said, and the stories that clothing can tell and how potent it really is. And I was kind of fascinated by the lives that had been led in these clothes. And so, you know, at a very young age, I was a member of the British Costume Society, and I would sort of go to their seminars and meet all these wonderful ancient ladies who had collections of lace and fans and (laughs) Victorian costume and so on. I mean, I was really like a 10-year-old. And um, I was already a collector myself. I'd sort of, uh, my mum loved going antiquing and going to junk shops and things. And I would accompany her and I had 50 pence a week pocket money, which is was half a pound and about 50 cents. And I would go, you know, and I would buy whatever I could afford with my weekly pocket money if I hadn't already spent it on licorice all sorts and lemon sherbets. And I would I would just buy what fell within my budget. And so that that meant mid-Victorian guinea purses or gentlemen's needlepoint slippers from the 1860s or maybe wow. <laughs> a pair of 1920s golden lame dancing shoes. <laughs> Whatever I could find, I would also go to jumble sales, rummage sales, with my elbows sharpened and I would kind of dodge under the, you know, between the sort of terrifying old ladies who kind of stalked them and pushed you aside. And I found, you know, flapper dresses and wonderful things. And I would keep them in the bottom drawer of my stripped pine chest of drawers. And I kept a card index. And so I would write and I would say, you know, pair of ladies, 1920s shoes, circa 1925, made of spun gold lame, 50p, Bexhill on Sea, jumble sale, church jumble sale. And then I would you know, write a little thing about it. I mean, I wish I was as systematic now as I, <laughs> as I was then. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, this is like an archivist's dream or curator's yeah. dream come true. <laughs> well, um, th- so that was, you know, that was when I was really probably seven, eight, nine, that kind of age. And then when I started reading Vogue, I was became aware of fashion design, contemporary fashion design, and ergo fashion history. And I went to a you know I went to a rummage sale a, a jumble sale that was to benefit the ballet company at the Sadler's Wells and there was a navy blue boucle tweed suit from Balenciaga that had been given by one of their trustees and I bought that I think it was 50p and I did a little card index thank god I have it because I wrote the donor's name which I would otherwise have forgotten and the same auction, there was a Margot Fontaine, who was the great, the great British ballerina of her age, had donated and a great fashion, a wonderful fashion plate, who dressed at Dior, Balenciaga, Yves Saint Laurent, and some of the very good London couturiers like Hardy Amis. Um, she had donated a Balenciaga, a Toreador-inspired bolero jacket from 1946 that was in crimson velvet embroidered with jet. And that, that they, they appreciated that that was a valuable, important thing. So they did a little mini auction and it went for 60 pounds. And I remember I was in floods of tears because <laughs> I, hadn't managed to, I hadn't managed to save 120 weeks worth of pocket money. 
But the, the amazing thing is that decades later, I walked into a very curated vintage store in Los Angeles and I saw the same jacket without its label. Uh, you could see the sort of the shadow of where the label had been stitched in and the correct Balenciaga shape. And I, you know, it was like some <laughs> rosebud moment. So that's now in my collection. It came back to you. <laughs> it came back to me. Things things often do. It's very funny with collecting. So, you know, what happened was I was just, you know, I just collected and whenever I had the money and more often when I didn't have the money, I would buy things. I, I started going to Christie's South Ken sales when I was about 15 or 16. They were every Tuesday when I was supposed to have, be having French lessons and my French really suffered as a result. <laughs> but I... You know, and then, you know, occasionally something would slip through the net and I would buy it. I had, I bought a wonderful 1922 Lucille golden tissue lame gown, which is was illustrated by, photographed by Baron de Meyer for Harper's Bazaar. I bought a, you know, a cerise cut velvet and satin Balmain dress, cocktail dress from 1958. Um, whatever I could afford, I bought um, the very first thing I bought was a calash, a kind of silk hooped head covering for a high 18th century wig. But then I sort of graduated really to fashion things. And I was finding, I was really finding Balenciaga dresses in charity thrift stores, you know. That's incredible. And at the Portobello Road, of course, and so on. I hadn't really set out to create a collection, but I was inspired by, you know, all the lovely old ladies and in the costume society and, you know, they would take you up into their little attic bedrooms and they'd have mannequins dressed in Victorian clothes or something. I thought it was kind of <laughs> bewitching. It's like out of a movie. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I, you know, I was certainly consciously assembling things and then it went on and on and on. And on one of my early trips to New York, a friend of mine introduced me to Richard Martin and Harold Coder at FIT. And I was so inspired by this idea that there was this incredible collection that was in principle uh, available to students for research. And I hadn't really, I mean, I'd of course done my own intensive research, but there wasn't really an equivalent in London at that point. You know, if you wanted to see something at the Victorian Albert Museum, you had to make an appointment six months in advance or so on. And of course, if you were working on a project that had to be delivered, you know, in three days, that was not realistic situation. So I think that was an epiphany in a way, because I just felt maybe I should really assemble a collection that ultimately would be useful for historians and fashion students and so on. And then, you know, and the collecting just didn't stop really. And, and at a certain point, I kind of realized that I had a collection that needed to be managed. And it's now, you know, I think there are 3,500 pieces and, you know, that's a lot of dresses and it's never ending, you know, the process. It's absolutely an addiction. But, you know, my great excitement is when I can lend things to museum exhibitions. I mean, there are some pieces just about to be unveiled at the Gabrielle Coco Chanel exhibition at the at the Palais Galliera mm -hmm. is is opening the beginning of next month. There are pieces for a little black dress that the National Gallery of Scotland is working on, and um, 
you know, I, I have pieces coming back from FIT's ballet and fashion exhibition and, you know, on and on it goes. So things are all, uh, you know, a lot of these projects have been put on hold, but there's, there's, I have a lot of Dior hats ultimately going to an exhibition at Grand Vie of, of Dior's hats. So, uh, you know, my, interest is it's sort of in, is getting the collection out there and so that more and more curators understand what I have and that I could be a resource and I'm just working with Manor Manor Contemporary in New Jersey to kind of rehouse the collection and consolidate it in a way that's going to make it much much easier for students and designers to come and study things and it's always Historically, it's been very exciting for me to show pieces to designer friends because it's so fascinating seeing what they gravitate to and the kind of things that inspire them. And I've been so lucky because, you know, designers like Dries van Noten and Sarah Burton have been so exceptionally generous and given me fantastic things for the collection. And what I'm what I'm always looking for and interested in are contemporary pieces that have a dialogue with historic pieces in my collection so that I can kind of look at an Erdem piece or a Christopher Kane or a, or a, a Marnie Prenza Schooler and think, oh my God, that would be so great in dialogue with this 1968 Saint Laurent or uh, 1932 Auguste Bernard or whatever it is in the, you know, the exhibition that I'm curating in my head. So <laughs> that that's kind of the the fun, the fun of things. And yes, as you say, you know, that certainly feeds in, has always fed into my work at Vogue. It's, you know, thrilling part of my Vogue life is always doing designer profiles, whether it be someone really at the, at the brink of their career or a very established creative director of a, of a, a global brand, because, you know, they all have different processes it's so fascinating having, you know, to be able to look at a runway show and understand a lot of the references. You know, we've certainly come out of a period that has been so inspired by the idea of vintage. And it's actually so thrilling to feel that we're on the cusp of a whole new generation that is kind of rejecting that and thinking much more in, in totally different terms of sustainability and transparency and supply chain and and that that's kind of informing their process rather than this kind of constant feeding on on vintage ideas as lovely as I find that. Hamish, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And if you have something else that you would like to join us again to chat about anytime you have a standing invitation, we would be over the moon. Open invitation <laughs> anytime. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, I have some very exciting exhibition projects coming up. So watch this space and I'd be thrilled to get on a Zoom call and to discuss those with you. So watch this space. <laughs> oh, we can't wait to hear about it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hamish. Thank you both so much for having me. What a treat that was, April. I don't know about you, but Hamish has just been a staple of my Vogue experience since day one. I guess I probably started reading or at least admiring Vogue in my early teens um, when you start kind of ripping out those sheets and putting them on your wall. But it was only once I started my fashion history career trajectory that I really realized what an incredible presence he has in our field. And you and I always talk about this, but 
it really isn't a fashion exhibition if there's not at least one piece from his incredible collection. <laughs> and I'm curious, do you have a favorite piece of his? Uh, I have so many favorite pieces of his. Um, there was this exquisitely beautiful Pierre Balmain tool dress in the ballerina exhibition that was at museum at FIT last year that it's like gray tool and then it has like this very long feathers kind of like oh yes like sewn into the skirt and decorating the bodice but what you don't realize until you get really up close is that the feathers aren't actually feathers they're actually hand painted on pieces of fabric and it is really really beautiful and then of course you know that Scaparelli is one of my all-time favorite designers and he has this really iconic one of her little bolero jackets that she was doing in the 1930s um, that were usually worn over like longer dinner dresses and it's one of the ones that's in her signature sleeping blue color and then it has tons and tons of like beading and embroidery on it as well just I mean perfection basically Yeah, I mean, he has so many incredible pieces. It's really hard to pick, but hands down, I think my favorite piece is his Jean Lambin 1926 robe de steel. We, of course, know that Lambin was famous for this panniered style, especially because it stood in such stark contrast to, you know, those box-like silhouettes that were so fashionable during the 1920s. And this one in particular is black. It has this beautiful beaded teardrop-like applique detailing along the neckline, at the waist, and down the center front. And what is so incredible about this piece in particular is the documentation. It's photographed in Vogue magazine, Mm -hmm. and it survives in three incarnations. (laughs) Or I'm sorry, in four, actually, because Hamish has one, and then there's three in museum collections. And I just really love that so much about Hamish's collection. He can date so many of his pieces to the exact collection that they were produced in. Uh, He can provide you know, original photographs and sketches from the period to accompany his garments. So he really does a lot of research to kind of find out the provenance of of these pieces. And he really knows what he's buying when he buys it or collects it. And you can see what I'm talking about, dress listeners, April and I are talking about by following Hamish's two Instagram accounts. He has Hamish Bowles Collection and Hamish Bowles, and his last name is spelled B-O-W-L-E-S, Hamish, H-A-M-I-S-H. And you will not be disappointed. We'll, of course, be posting some images this week on Instagram, but go over there and check it out to get kind of a daily dose. Yeah. Yet another rabbit hole, friends. (laughs) And I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider your favorite couture pieces from fashion history next time you get dressed. Remember to tune in this Thursday for our mini-sode where we alternate between answering your fashion history mystery queries and sharing fashion history happenings in the world today. We love hearing from you, so if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will also find images accompanying each week's episode. And also you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Catch you Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. From our podcast from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.